My name is Simon Walker. I'm a, I am the pastoral intern at Sovereign Grace Warunga. Uh, there's not many. There's just one. Um, and we've got our pastoral team, as Ollie prayed. They're over at the conference in Orlando, Florida. Um, and it's a blessing for them to go. It is work for Dave particularly. As leader of emerging nations, he's spending a lot of time um, with some of the pastors from all those different nations that he's leading. Uh, but it is also just a rich time of fellowship. So keep them in your prayers this week. Uh, and as well, Meg and Emma as well. Um, so for those that are new or visiting, we are in the middle of an extensive journey through the book of Exodus. Um, we're 22 chapters in, and we're currently about 10 commandments. Uh, sorry, we're just after the 10 commandments where we find ourselves in what's known as the book of the covenant, chapters 21 through 23. The book of the covenant is focused mostly on outlining causistic laws. In other words, if you do this, then why should happen? Dave did a great job explaining a complex set of laws. Is it quite echoey? Yeah. How are we going? Just keep talking and hopefully it will settle? All right. That was the advice of Josh, so I'm just going to keep talking. Um, So today we continue our study of a broad range of laws and guidelines for God's people to live together as a just society while also calling his people to live lives that are set apart, holy. So we're going to read the Bible and then we're going to pray. If you want to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 22, uh, we are reading from verse 16 through to Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. So Exodus 22... Verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You should not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal should be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses the firstborn of your sons and you shall give to me. the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be a consecra- you shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You should throw it to the dogs. You shall not spread a false report 
You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the course of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave to beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days shall, shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Is anyone thinking what I'm thinking? (laughs) I've been absolutely stitched up by the pastors. (laughs) They have gone off on their pastoral retreat, having a grand old time, and left the pastoral intern with this text. I said to Dave as he was heading off the other day, I said, mate, it feels like I've played a game of rugby. I've just come off the field after wrestling with this text for a few weeks now. Uh, But it has been a joy, and the Lord, he has been good. He's been kind in giving clarity to what has been a challenging text. Uh, Do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't know. We'll try and make some clarity around that. Uh, We need to pray. We need to ask God for his grace in this. So why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray together. Heavenly Father, we just want to pause and look to you. You are a good God. We love you dearly. Today, as we try to understand this text, Lord, I pray that you would bring clarity. I pray that it would give us a picture of who you are and the people that you call us to be. Give me grace to do this, to to teach this faithfully, Lord, I pray. Amen. Now, despite being a PDHBE teacher, uh, my actual best subject at school in the HSC was visual arts. 
Yeah, I don't know what it is. Uh, it's something about art that captivates me. Um, the photos, photos, sculptures, paintings, installations, it doesn't really matter. When I look at an artwork, it draws me in. I, I love the story that art tells. I love the complexity of the textures. I love the colours. All those things captivate me and draw me in. And I want to suggest that today, as we study this text, we view it much like that of a piece of art. An artwork that tells an incredible story that gives us insight into the nature and character of the artist. A story characterised by precise brushstrokes, detailed textures, brilliant colours, the story of a holy God who calls his people to be holy. As we examine this text this morning, there will be moments where we're actually going to step back and we're going to have a look at the artwork in its entirety. And then at moments we're going to step forwards and examine the unique intricacies, the detailed brushstrokes that bring the story to life. To help us see this clearly, this beautiful picture, we're going to actually focus on four points today. Point one, a holy God, a holy people. Point two, distinctive compassion. Point three, distinctive justice. And point four, distinctive obedience. And if there's one idea, one takeaway message from today's uh, passage, it would be this. We worship a holy God who calls us to be holy. By way of context, we already know from our previous week studying the Ten Commandments that the commandments focus on sort of two key themes. Loving God, commandments 1 to 4, and loving your neighbour, commandments 5 to 10. And like all, all laws in the Bible, they are, just like today's text, they are an elaboration of the Ten Commandments. The book, of, the book of the Covenant, chapters 21 to 23 of Exodus, offer detailed legislation focused primarily on the practical application of loving God and loving your neighbour. Let's quickly grab a drink. All right, we're good. Okay, so today's passage offers laws for living together as a just society and calls Israel to live lives that are holy and set apart. A theme that is emphasised in verse 31 of our text today. It says, You are to be consecrated to me. And in the NIV that reads, You are to be a holy people. And when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Like, Egypt has been in slavery for 400 years. They have no idea what it looks like to be a consecrated people. And so it makes sense that God goes into detail and provides practical examples of what it looks like to live out the Ten Commandments. And so as we study these laws today, not only will they provide practical application of what it is for Israel to be consecrated people, but as we will see, they will reveal the character of God the nature of the lawgiver, because the law reveals the lawgiver. My hope today as we study this text is that God's holiness is revealed in his call for his people to be holy and set apart. Which brings us to our first point, a holy God, a holy people. 
Now, as we've looked at Exodus, week in, week out, God's divine character continues to be displayed. The character of God, his communicable attributes, the attributes that he shares with us, have been on show throughout this book. We've seen God to be a God of love and mercy, who has saved and redeemed his people from Egypt, from slavery. He is the God of provision, who provides for his people in the wilderness. He is the God of power, who manifests his presence in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He is the God of grace, who provides a law to guide and protect his people like that of a loving father. We have seen this as we reflect over the course of Exodus. God is the God of knowledge and wisdom, goodness and justice, who has drawn Israel out of darkness and into his glorious light. And so just in the same way, our text today will reveal God's holiness in his commands for his people to be holy. To help us understand the idea of a holy God and a holy people, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology puts it this way. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honour. God's holiness provides the pattern for his people to imitate. He commands them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. As Leviticus 19 points out, God specifically addresses his people and commands them to be holy because he is a holy God. For if God is holy, separated from sin, devoted to seeking his own honour, then his people must also And we get a glimpse of this in Exodus chapter 19, which we've already studied as a church. Exodus 19 through verses 5 and 6, God specifically addresses his people in this way. He says, verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests a holy nation. Israel is called to be a holy nation. That is a nation that is set apart from other nations. A nation for God's personal use, his treasured possession. God has called them to be a chosen people, a people distinctive, distinctive from other nations, characterized by who they are in God and how they live. I'll say that again. God has called them to be a distinctive people characterized by who they are in God and how they live. And so as we step back and examine the full scope of this artwork at the moment and consider the context of these laws we read today, the image is clear. God is a holy God. His law commands his people to be holy. Now we're going to step a little bit closer now. We're going to start to examine the text, the intricacies of these laws, the detailed brushstrokes of the artist. The question that we want to answer is, what does it look like for Israel in verse 31 to be a consecrated people? Verse 16 we read, If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, He shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. 
If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price of virgins. Here we're given a picture of a couple caught in the act of premarital sex. The use of the word seduce suggests that the man persuades the woman and she consents. God is establishing his pattern for courtship, marriage and sex, and calling his people to be holy. Verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. God is again saying, you shall not engage in sorcery. Any attempt to wield spiritual power by demonic influence, witchcraft or black magic, is against me and my holiness. Don't do it. We must put it to death. Verse 19, whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. I'm not sure this needs much explanation, but uh, we can go there. The sad truth is that this was fairly prevalent within the cultural context of Israel. Historically, this practice was part of pagan worship and thought to stimulate the gods and produce fertility. The Hittites, another people group uh, around Israel at the time, they actually forbid bestiality with certain animals, but approved it with others. So the point being... The law, although perhaps maybe it's sort of a bit unusual for us to read it, would have been really helpful for God's people in that context as they sought to work out what does it look like for us to be a holy nation, a people set apart from all other nations. Verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. God again points out what it is to be holy Do not worship other gods. Flee from idolatry. Verse 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Israel is to honour God and their rulers. Respect those who who have authority over them. Each of these laws are then summed up a few verses later, as I've already said, in 31. You shall be consecrated to me. You shall be a holy people. Because God is holy and pure, he wants his people to remain pure. Free from sexual immorality, free from idolatry, sorcery, evil, bestiality, you name it, God's people are being called to live lives that are different, distinctive from other nations. Sadly, this was the reality of the broader social context of that time. And to be honest, we shouldn't be shocked to see these commands clearly stipulated. Though the pragmatics might be different for us today, sins of adultery, sorcery, sexual immorality, idolatry, we know these are alive and well in our culture today. God has called Israel to be a chosen people, a holy people, a people distinctive from all others, characterized by who they are in him and how they live. Now, once a year, uh, the school that I work at, they hold what's called the celebration, the academic celebration, the culmination of 12 months of hard work and many memories created within the school context. And like, they like to celebrate it well. Um, they want to create a sense of occasion, a sense of achievement, And each year, the teachers are required to don their academic gowns, put their specific coloured hood 
that sort of specifies the institution that they studied at and the qualifications that they have. People with PhDs get to wear fluffy hats. We just have to dress up, essentially. We look, yeah, unusual. (laughs) Anyway, they then ask the teachers to kind of parade into the auditorium to the applause of the, the students and the parents. And it's kind of special. Like They want to acknowledge in that moment... Um, They want to recognize us for our hard work. But nevertheless, the point is, the school wants the teachers to be recognizable, distinguishable from all others in that context. They want to know that we want to be able to see the teachers, the people that have put in the time and effort to help these students achieve. They want the teachers to be set apart. God is telling his people, you are to be like this. Don your academic gowns. You are to be like him. You have been set apart, called to be holy people, distinguishable in every way from the rest of mankind. And so, again, we want to try and understand what does this look like for them. And so in order to answer this question, we need to take another step closer to the text to examine the artwork. And there's three points of application that I want to point out for us today. They're not an exhaustive list. But it's clear that in order to be God's chosen people, a holy nation, they are to be distinguishable in their compassion, in their justice, and in their obedience. And those are going to be forming up our next three points. Point two, distinctive compassion. God's people are to be people characterized by compassion, distinctive in their care and concern for the sufferings and the misfortunes of others. Verses 21 through 27 in our text. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. These verses make specific mention of the sojourner, the widow, the fatherless, the child, the fatherless child and the poor. And for what reason? Why does this text mention these people? Each of these people lack one or more types of protection otherwise afforded within society. The sojourner, the alien, without home or citizen, citizenship, unable to own land and without access to legal support, the widow without a husband to represent her in legal matters, as was the custom of that day, unable to access ownership of land, the orphan without family or inheritance, vulnerable and completely at the mercy of others, and the poor with little possessions, security and support, These people were on the margins of society 
And God is addressing his people and calling them to show compassion and care for those rendered powerless. Perhaps today this group could be expanded to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, the single parent, those with a chronic disability or the elderly. Interestingly, though, there is actually one other group in this text that God mentions. And I think it captures all of these people as well as us. Verse 26, he mentions the neighbour. Who is our neighbour? To help illustrate this, Luke 10, in Luke 10, a lawyer stands up to test Jesus about the commandment to love your God and to love your neighbour. He says to Jesus, who is our neighbour? And Jesus tells the parable of the good Samaritan. We know the parable well. It highlights three different responses to the call to show distinctive compassion. Based on their resumes alone, the priest and the Levite should have shown distinctive compassion in that moment when they saw the man beaten and broken on the road. But it's actually the most unlikely of people, the Samaritan man who crosses sociocultural barriers to give of his time and his resources to show distinctive compassion to his neighbour. As Jesus concludes the story, he asks the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? What a great question. What a great comeback to this lawyer who's trying to trip him up. The point Jesus is about to make, the point Jesus is making, is that the actions of the Samaritan reflect a neighbourly compassion that goes far beyond the assumed response of the priest or the Levite, perhaps even the cultural Christian of today. Distinguishable compassion for our neighbour will ultimately cost will ultimately come at some level of cost to us. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way very helpfully, I think. If our neighbours' difficulties and necessities are much greater than ours, and we see that they are not likely to be relieved, we should be willing to suffer with them and take part of their burden upon ourselves. Or else, how is that rule fulfilled of bearing one another's burdens? If we are obliged to relieve others' burdens, but only when, it can do, when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we actually bear our neighbours' burdens when we bear no burden at all? To put it simply, if we as rich, rich Christians in the West experience no sense of burden for our neighbour, we fail to display distinctive compassion. To live out God's call to be a holy people characterised by compassion means to bear with each other in their burdens. How can we say we bear each other's burdens and yet bear no burden at all? So what does bearing the burden of our neighbour look like? Well, first question, do you know your neighbours? The colleague... The family next door, the mum at the school drop-off, the new migrant in your apartment complex, 
Do we know our neighbours? And do we know our neighbours' burdens? Are you seeking out opportunities at cost to yourself to bear these burdens with them? As Jesus concludes the story, he says to the people, Go and do likewise. Distinctive compassion is to be like the Samaritan. Now, if that's not humbling enough, the parable of the Samaritan paints a picture of us also, lying dead in our trespasses on the road. It was Jesus who was moved with compassion to consider the cost, to bear our burden, to give his life to rescue us. Only a holy God who is rich in power and might is characterized by compassion. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a man, a poor man, insults his maker. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. This is why God can say that if we dishonor the people, the dishonor the poor, the marginalized, the burdened, we insult him. And we are generous, and when we are generous and bear with each other, we honor our God. In verse 27, God describes himself as compassionate by saying, I will hear their cry. That is the marginalized that we've talked about. For I am compassionate. And in his compassion, God seeks justice. Verse 23 and 24, we see this justice on show. If you do mistreat them, that is the marginalized, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. I will kill you with the sword and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. These laws reflect God's compassionate nature, but his heart for justice also. Which brings us to the third point. The third characteristic of a holy people. Distinctive justice. God's people are to be a people characterized by justice, distinctive in their pursuit of righteousness. And what I mean by this is is this. God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Therefore, as a holy nation, Israel should seek to be characterized by doing what is right and seeking justice. In verses 1 through 8 of chapter 23 of the text that we read today, the theme of righteousness and justice are clearly displayed. Verse 1, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Verse 2, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. The text emphasizes the importance of upholding truth, abstaining from spreading false report, 
from perverting the course of justice and to not follow the crowd in doing wrong. The text even points out that we shall not show favoritism to the poor man in his lawsuit, which, given what we've just unpacked, could possibly seem a little bit contradictory. But at the heart of these laws is God's righteousness, his demand for justice, even if it means dishing out a just punishment to the poor man in his lawsuit. God's people are called to do what is right, to seek justice. Now, I've got a bit of a confession to make. I've always been one to kind of want to maintain order. Um, It's a strength and a weakness of mine. From a young age, my room was notoriously clean compared to my siblings. Uh, I've just had this strong desire always to create order, to restore, to put things in their right place. If a piece of paper on my desk is crooked, I straighten If clothes are lying on the floor, I pick them up, I fold them, and I put them back in the drawer. Just this morning, I noticed that the toilet paper roll was on the wrong way. (laughs) The paper needs to be neatly presented on top of the roll, not hanging down below. So turn it around, put it back in. And and that's that's what I thought. Some of you here are going, amen, brother. (laughs) Yes, there's a few of you. Some of you are going, how did this guy get the preaching gig? Like, seriously. (laughs) And I can see some of you are like, elbowing your spouse going, I wish you were more like him. (laughs) The point is, God's people have to have the same mindset. To notice the wrongs in day-to-day life and do what is right. God is commanding his people to practice justice, to maintain law and order, to right any wrongs. And so what does doing justice look like for the people? Well, in verse 4 and 5, he presents a sobering picture that when Israel sees their enemy's ox go astray, they actually have to go after it and rescue it. If they see the donkey of one who hates them trapped in harm's way, they actually need to risk themselves to go and rescue it. It's clear that to do what is right will again come at a cost. Distinctive justice will inevitably draw you away from your comfortable life and demand you go above and beyond. Tim Keller in his book Generous Justice puts it nicely, doing justice includes not only righting the wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially towards the poor and the vulnerable. This kind of life reflects the character of God. It consists of a broad range of activities from simple, fair and honest dealings with people in daily life to regular, radically generous giving of your time and resources to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, violence and oppression. What about in our context? What does it look like to practice simple, fair, honest dealings with people as well as radically generous giving of our time and resources? What does that look like? 
Perhaps it's abstaining from gossip or slander in the workplace that fuels rumour. It's not right. Don't do it. Cutting corners on your tax return. It's not right. Don't do it. Texting while driving. It's not right. Don't do it. The trade of women and children into sex slavery. It's not right. God's people are called to seek justice, to advocate, to act with integrity, to be radically generous in the giving of their time and resources, to right wrongs, to seek justice. God has given us his law, his word to help us in this, and we are to respond with obedience, to do what his law says. Which brings us to our final point, distinctive obedience. God's people are to be characterized by distinctive obedience. Now, as a parent, or if you're a parent, you'll be very aware that we are constantly caused to teach our children to not do this and to do this. You shall not do this. You shall do this. What's the first thing that comes out of our kids' mouths? But they're doing it. But look at them. Look what they get to do. As a parent in that moment, out of love, we need to correct them. and We need to say, no, that is not who we are. That is not what we do. This is what God does with his law when he calls his people to obedience. He says, this is what we do. Because you are a holy people. This is what distinguishes us from other nations. In chapter 23, verses 13 through 19, a series of festivals and practices are stipulated for the people of God to observe, to obey. As we read, just notice the shift in the emphasis from our previous verses that emphasized, you shall not do this. Now as we read, the command is, you shall do this. Verse 13, pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest for the first fruits of your labor for which you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you shall, shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the fruit, first fruits of your ground, you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. The emphasis in these verses is displayed in God's command for his people to observe and uphold three key festivals and to offer their first fruits to the Lord. To the Lord. The language in this text, you shall do this, indicates action. Active obedience to their God. 
At the heart of these scriptures is an, is an emphasis on the importance of only obeying God. Verse 13, pay attention to all that I have said to you, you and make no mention of the names of other gods, gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Now at the start of uh, this sermon, we read uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. God promises his people will be a holy nation. Yet as we look at this text again, we will note that the fundamental basis of being a holy people is obedience. Look at it in verse 5. It's there clear as day, if you indeed obey. If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Obedience is at the heart of what it is to pursue a holy God and to follow after his son, Jesus. As Christians, we confess that Jesus is both Lord and Saviour. Like the beaten man on the road rescued by the Samaritan, Jesus' blood spilt on the cross has saved us. But we don't stop there. We don't just take the saving grace and stop there. In Matthew 28, as he sends his disciples out, Jesus commands his followers to observe, to obey all that he commanded. Jesus is our king. He calls us to respond with distinctive obedience. And yet at this point, I cannot stress enough Distinctive obedience does not secure salvation. We know that. God's people will never secure their salvation through the observance of the law. We are broken, sinful people who, if God had not gone after us, would be dead in our sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his love for us, has made us alive in Christ. It's by grace that we have been saved. Through faith, this is not our doing. This is a gift of God so that none of us can boast. We don't practice distinctive obedience because it puts us right with God. For it is by grace we have been saved, not by works so that no one should boast. John Piper puts it quite helpfully, obedience to God is the mark of a holy people, not the measure. Obedience to God is the mark of a holy people, not the measure. God's people were rescued from the hand of Pharaoh, not because of what they did. They were slaves. But because of God's mighty power displayed in the sending of the plagues, the parting of the sea, the pillar of fire at night, the provision of manna in the desert, the giving of the Ten Commandments. We have been saved because he who knew no sin bore our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Israel was charged to create a culture of compassion, justice and obedience because it was the way the nation could reveal God's glory and character to the world. 
Israel is called to obey God's command so that, it, that all nations will look at the compassion, the justice, and the peace in their society. This text points us that to that today. Based on God's laws that we've just read, to be attracted to God's wisdom and glory. Distinctive obedience is the mark of a holy people, not the measure, and this distinctive society will be a mere poster, an advertisement of the glory and majesty of their God. So to close, how do we actually apply this to us? One of the law's primary purposes is to convince us that we are sinners, that we fall short of God's holiness and hence we need a saviour. We cannot be saved by keeping the law because we are lawbreakers by nature. Jesus' perfect obedience to God's law has fulfilled all righteousness by his death on the cross. Jesus has paid the penalty. Justice has been served for our disobedience. And yet God still commands, with the aid of the Holy Spirit, for us to live in obedience, to follow Jesus, to observe his commandments. 1 Peter 2, we see Peter using the language of Exodus to address the churches in their pursuit of obedience to Christ. Verses 9 through 12, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The application for today's text is reiterated for us in 11 and 12 of this passage. What do we do? As sojourners and exiles in this world, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep our conduct amongst the Gentiles honourable. So that when they speak, speak evil against us, they may see the good deeds. Not glorify us, but glorify God. Just as God called his people out of darkness in Egypt and brought them into his marvellous light, he continues to call us today. This side of the cross, God's holiness and glory is on display in his plan to make for himself a holy priestly nation characterised by distinctive compassion, justice and obedience. As we step back to examine this artwork in its entirety, and then as we stepped forward to study this text, And notice the beauty of the brushstrokes. The image is very clear to us. We worship a holy God who calls us to be holy. As for why a young goat must not be boiled in its mother's milk, I 
I'm going to leave that one for you to discuss in your community groups because I've got nothing. Uh, but I'm going to pray for us now to finish up. So why don't you bow your head? Lord, you are a holy God. You cannot bear sin. And yet you sent your Son into this world to bear our sin. Why would you do that? Because you love us. And so, Lord, in response, help us to be people characterized by obedience, justice and compassion. Help us to live lives that are holy and set apart. Give us your spirit to do that, Lord. And in all of that, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.